This is the Life-Changing Conversations podcast, brought to you by Neil Shah, Chief De-Stressing Officer at the Stress Management Society and produced by Change Your World Events. Join in the conversation by visiting our LCC podcast Facebook page. Like, comment, share, and tell us what you think. As I crossed Waterloo Bridge on my way to work that cold January morning, I spotted a young man sitting on the railings, dressed in just jeans and t-shirt, looking towards Big Ben. I had no idea that what was about to happen would eventually change my life. Originally from Watford, I'd moved to London only a couple of months earlier. Life was good. I was dating Sarah, now my wife, and had just started a new job as a fitness trainer in the West End. I was working long hours trying to build up a client base, and my commute from Teddington was not an easy one. But there was so much to look forward to. The future looked good. As I walked towards the young guy on the bridge, I started to realise that this was far from good. I looked around to see whether he was with anybody, but he seemed alone. People walking past him stared at him, but nobody stopped. I knew instinctively that I had to do something, so I approached him carefully. Um, Hi mate, are you alright? Why are you sitting on the side of the bridge? Can you go away please? Leave me alone. No, I want to know why you're on the bridge. I'm going to kill myself. Can I ask why? why? Why do you want to kill yourself? I can't live anymore. I can't be here anymore. It's too painful. I can't deal with life anymore. Can you tell me what's going on? I'm not well. The next thing I remember from the conversation was me trying to find out more about his illness. I needed to engage him, but he was having none of it. Can you please just let me do this? Don't try to stop me. I thought, okay, let's try to find out a bit more. So I asked him where he came from. I ran away from hospital. Which hospital? He told me it was in Stanmore or Harrow. I don't remember which. Really? Where exactly? I grew up near there. I told him I was from Watford. This was the moment that something tipped. I'd been chipping away and now, suddenly, it was as if a switch had been thrown. He looked at me for the first time and engaged. Really? Did you? Now we finally started having a conversation. I was debating whether I should grab him, but decided that should be the last resort. Instead, I stayed calm and reassuring, thinking, I'll deal with the shitstorm afterwards, I should deal with this right now. Still, nobody else had stopped, except for this one guy who looked back at me and raised an eyebrow, as if acknowledging the situation. I've often wondered whether he was the one who called the police. In the meantime, I asked the man on the edge of the bridge about his family, and he said that nobody knew he was there. I decided to just let him talk, which he now did. Eventually, I suggested we have a coffee. There's a cafe nearer at the end of the bridge. Let's go and talk some more. It's freezing, mate. The guy turned, his hand still clutching the railing. Finally, he started to climb over the side of the bridge. For a while, he just stood there on the pavement, looking dazed, but we both knew we were going to have that coffee. Just then, out of nowhere, a police car came screeching up. No sirens. The young guy immediately panicked and tried to jump back on the edge of the bridge, but I grabbed him both arms and held back. After they handcuffed him, his head down on the car, the police officers took my statement. They were terribly matter-of-fact, completely unemotional, as if they couldn't care less about what the guy had just been through. I asked them where they were taking him, and they just told me, to hospital. From there, I went straight back into work mode and into a training session. I didn't explain why I was late. In fact, I didn't tell anybody about the incident for quite a while, except for Sarah. I never tried to find Johnny, but for years afterwards, I felt guilt. 
It was a philosophical question. Did I change the man's destiny by doing what I did? He told me how unbearable his pain was and that he needed it to stop. Did he now have to live with it still? In some respects, even though he didn't jump, the whole episode hadn't ended terribly well. The guy was hysterical, crying in the back of the police car. I hoped he would find peace. It was me who stopped his journey that day, so I hope he's okay. That was an extract from The Stranger on the Bridge, written by Johnny Benjamin. And those were the words of Neil Laybourne, the stranger that stepped in to intervene when Johnny had planned to take his life on that fateful day. I'm absolutely delighted to have Johnny Benjamin here with me today for this life-changing conversation. Johnny, that was literally a life-changing conversation you had with Neil on the bridge that day. How do you feel hearing that account now, with 10 years of distance and reflection and knowing how far you've come since that dark day? Mm, it feels uh, very strange, very strange uh, hearing that. It feels like a different life, almost, if that makes sense. It feels like... Absolutely. Um, I feel like a different person now. I know people might say um, 10 years, it's been 10 years, 10 years is a long time, but it actually feels like it's been decades and decades and decades rather than just 10 years because I just, yeah. It's, I mean, I'm in a different place now and, and he's in a different place and we're now reunited and we're working together and we're friends. So yeah, very, very strange, very strange um, hearing that, to be honest. And how are you today? You know, obviously I acknowledge the fact that it may not have been plain sailing since that day. You know, recovery from these kind of experiences is never linear. Um, so, you know, tell me about how you are today in the journey from that day to, 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 to where we are now. It's hard to describe, it's hard to put into words. It's, it's been a massive journey and it's still an ongoing journey. You know, it's still an ongoing journey. The, the big difference is now I, I'm not fighting it like I used to. So, you know, I went to the bridge because um, I couldn't handle my, my my mental health, what was going on in my head. I couldn't handle the, the diagnosis. I was struggling with my sexuality. I, could, I just, I was, I was fighting it all. And I think over the years, I've learned to, to fight less with, with my mind, if that makes sense. Mm. I mean, it's still, uh, yeah, an ongoing sort of challenge and, and new things come up and, and um, in, in therapy all the time and I'm, I'm I've got tools now that's the thing I've got tools I've got I think I've got awareness now I've got I've got tools I fight less with it um, yeah I've got a, a very different attitude towards my my mental health towards life in, in, in general may I ask you about your diagnosis yeah so um, my diagnosis was given to me when I was 20 uh, schizoaffective disorder mm-hmm. it's just like a combination of schizophrenia and bipolar all through my teenage years, I was struggling with my mental health. I didn't really understand the whole concept of mental health. I didn't. We didn't talk about it growing up. We didn't have anything in school, so I yeah, I didn't have a clue. What um, is it you were experiencing? My earliest, I don't know what you want to call it, like symptoms. My earliest symptoms were um, when I was really small, um, and I was seeing things that weren't there, um, hearing things that weren't there, and um, you know, my behaviour was was. This was when I was like four. I was, I was quite violent, I was um, uh, very anxious. So yeah, so my parents took me to see a, a child psychologist, but we didn't get very far. She scared me, so um, I, I, I behaved better, basically, because she, she scared me, I didn't want to go and see her. Um, but growing up, I always felt 
very different. Um, and then when, when I was 10, um, I started to hear what I thought was the voice of an angel, which I link a lot to my, my Jewish faith. I was, I was really influenced by my faith growing up in, in, in primary school, and then I went to a Jewish secondary school. And again, I was scared. I was really scared of, of, of doing wrong in, in, in terms of faith. And I started to hear the voice of this, this, this angel, and I don't know, I thought this was a great thing. I thought, it means I'm blessed, it means I'm doing well, it means, yeah, this, this is a good thing. Um, I thought everyone had a voice or had a kind of, um, a, a sort of character that they, they had with them, that, that they spoke to, that spoke to them. So I just thought that was normal. Um, but also, when I was around 10, um, I started believing there were cameras watching me. I started believing I was in what I thought was the, the Truman Show, a version of the Truman Show, like the film, mm. like the film with Jim Carrey. I thought that um, yeah, cameras were, were watching me and um, I was being shown on TV screens. I went to this big secondary school and I felt really invisible in school. And so I thought if I'm on this TV show, then, you know, um, people will see me and they'll, they'll like me and they'll respect me. So yeah, I was happy. I was happy with, with, with the notion that I was on TV. Um, but then things got really difficult in my mid-teens. I started getting like really low moods, started getting very depressed. Um, didn't understand what was going on. I was, I was, outwardly I was doing really well in school. I was doing well in my GCSEs and my A-levels and had good reports. Um, yeah, so I, and I come from a really good family, so um, I didn't understand why I was, just felt incredibly low. Couldn't get out of these moods, it was, it was very tearful. But it was also around that time that the voice in my head changed. So it went from being um, what I thought was this angel to what I thought was the devil. And just to, to help us to understand sort of what was the angel saying to you, what kind of messages were, were being given? It was, it was more like a commentary, like, you know, oh, it's sunny outside today, you don't need your jacket, or um, things about my schoolwork. Um, it was more commentary. Um, rather than what became what I thought was the devil, which was um, much more critical and started telling me to do things. Um, I would have to do things in threes. Um, I would have to... A lot of the time it was saying things three times. I had to, I'd have to say certain things three times, or else if I didn't say them, then something bad would happen. It was, it was critical, it was bullying, it was tormenting. Um, and, and looking back, I think it had a lot to do with my sexuality. Because um, you know, I was, I was a, yeah, in my mid-teens and um, I was starting to sort of, well, I guess, yeah, like explore my, my, my sexuality, I suppose. And I, I felt incredibly guilty um, and ashamed because I had feelings for it. Um, guys and um, obviously that's a sin in the in the Jewish faith and you know as I've said growing up I was so worried about doing right you know in terms of Jewish faith and because and, I thought I'd go to hell if I didn't I thought I thought my family would be punished if I if I if I wasn't a good person and that's when I first went to my doctor when I was I was 17 actually when I went to my doctor and um, my doctor referred me on to CAMS to the Child and Adolescent mm -hmm. Mental Health Service didn't didn't really go well. I went to one appointment, but but then there was a long waiting list for therapy, and I I just said to myself, look, I've 
I've, I've just got to do this on my own, I'll be fine. I, I plan to go off to university, leave, leave my home in North London and go off to Manchester and I thought that would solve everything. You know, I was convinced that would be a fresh start and I'd, I'd leave everything behind. Obviously, I went to university and I didn't leave anything behind and it, everything came with me. And it, it was, everything got worse at university because I was, um, uh, there was now alcohol involved um, and I was around a new group of people and I struggled with that and being away from home and, and, and living independently. My, my moods just got worse. I began, yeah, drinking, um, misusing alcohol, self-harming um, and yes, just spiralling, spiralling out of control really at university um, and I was, I was going to my doctor and we were trying different antidepressants but eventually I had a, I had a big breakdown in my, in my third year. In my third year I, I, um, I kind of lost control over, over what I was doing and saying so I felt like I was being possessed and then one night in, in November 2007 um, I left my house and I went onto the streets of Manchester where I was studying and I was shouting and screaming. It wasn't me talking, it was, you know, as I said, I felt possessed. And you went onto the streets, went onto a dual carriageway and um, screaming, shouting, and, and then I was picked up and I was taken to hospital. And then a few weeks after that, I ended up in this psychiatric hospital in, in London and, and was given this diagnosis. And that was, um, that was terrifying, yeah, that was absolutely terrifying, I, I thought. It felt like a life sentence as soon as I got the diagnosis and I just, I very quickly gave up when I was given that diagnosis and put into the hospital and, 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 and pumped with the medication and um, uh, very quickly kind of gave up. I just, I, I saw my life being sort of over and this, this was my life now, I thought, you know, hospitals, medication, um, no, no job, no family. Uh, yeah, it literally felt like the end, really, for me. Yeah, and, my, and then that's when also that's when my family found out because I kept it all from my family and my friends. Um, and I, obviously, they found out when I was admitted to this hospital, and and they found everything out, and and that was horrendous because uh, again, I felt really embarrassed and ashamed and um, a burden and a, and a letdown. So yeah, uh, it was just. Life just felt uh, too, too difficult and too complex, really, to, to carry on with. Johnny, this is a really, really important point because, you know, as men, we're told to pull your socks up and get on with it, soldier on, you know, man up and all that kind of stuff. And I think that there is a real challenge of men not being able to express themselves, but being expressing your emotions or talking about your feelings can be seen or viewed as a sign of weakness yeah. that you can't cope that you're not good enough yeah. I remember sort of growing up and you know observing my dad uh, who had a kind of a very kind of tough old school father um, and my dad was you know always someone that was really strong and got mm. on with things mm. and I watched him bury both of his parents didn't shed a tear mm. buried his sister and you know like he held it together it was it yeah. was like the strong guy and people looked at that as a sign of strength yeah. they they congratulated yeah. that and I that was my template of the world is that's how it should be in fact the only time I think I've ever seen my dad express emotions and later in life he got better but you know growing up the only time I really saw him get emotional was watching football and there was I remember sort of there was a world cup where I saw him shed a couple of tears or shouting and screaming and swearing at the football mm. at, the, at the TV or in the stands wherever we were 
And I guess I learned that. And the yeah. only place that I ever expressed my emotions was in the stands of a football stadium and where I could scream and cry and it would be yeah. fine. Yeah. But there was no other aspect of my life where no. I was able or comfortable to do that. No, no exactly the same with me. Because my dad, um, my dad used to take me to watch Crystal Palace. He's a Crystal Palace fan. And um, from an early age, I learned, like, you know, I, I remember seeing men cry. One guy, like, when there was a, a goal, he kissed me, like, and I was like, whoa, like, mm -hmm. wow, like, just the emotion, the emotion. Um, but then as soon as you left, it was like, right, like, back mm -hmm. on the train, like, yeah, put your, put your, put your guard up. And, um, yeah, I learned that early on, really, um, that that was, yeah, the only safe place to, to really show emotion. And, and it's such a shame. And we need more, we talked about this before, we need more male role models, particularly, I think, sportsmen, to, mm. to say, like, you know what? I'm vulnerable. I'm human. Uh, I'm. I'm not perfect. Um, I, I struggle as well. So Andy Murray, for example, Andy Murray. Um, you know he he gets emotional sometimes, and I I really applaud him for that. We we do. We need more male role models, role models that are, are willing to stand up and say, you know, I I I struggle. Absolutely, and you know we've had sort of the other end of the spectrum. We had like the, the Aaron Lennon wandering yeah. around the M sixty two, you know, getting section. Marcus Treskothic uh, yeah. several years ago. Um, it's the German goalkeeper. The name evades me. Uh, that, that that took his own life. Where yeah, you, you know, the, yeah. the, the, that's kind of seen as like oh, that, that person was broken and there's something know, wrong. And I, I really applaud people like Rio after yeah, his, 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 uh, his wife passed away you know speaking openly yeah. about kind of his struggle yeah. with mental health and uh, having really dark absolutely. thoughts and that absolutely. kind of thing and uh, and this is the thing we need to normalize this behavior mm. because we all experience it it doesn't mean you're broken mm. we all have mental health sometimes it's good and sometimes yeah. it's not um yeah. whereas when you mention the word mental health everyone automatically assumes we're talking about yeah. the bad side of it yes. yeah you know I run an organization called the Stress Management Society. Mm. A lot of people really fail to understand that we need stress to get through life. We've demonized mental health. And, and I think this is the, 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 it's become a bit of a barrier now where a lot of people just don't want to go there. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to touch on this subject. And I think this is, it's for, for me, this is a concern. And I, you know, I just, I, I really like to go back into your story um, just to, to use that as, as we mentioned like we need more people talking about their story and what got them to that place because I'm sure there are a lot of people that will hear these kind of stories and be able to relate to so many mm. elements of it mm. so what led up to the point to that fateful day you know what 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 kind of got you to the stage where you found yourself on the bridge I it was so this was now I'd, I'd been in hospital for a month um, I was meant to be going back to uni at that time and, and start my new term and it's just in the hospital you know people around me they, they were just so unwell and no one was getting any better I just felt myself getting worse I started having panic attacks for the first time I never had panic attacks before and uh, I remember that it was January the 13th uh, 2008 and this one evening on that day and something in me literally snapped I was just overthinking and I guess the thought you know entered my head well why don't I just kill myself and you know just this will be over with and I just suddenly felt clearer everything just suddenly felt clearer I was like right I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this I can do this and I can get out this this horrendous situation and this will be the best thing for people around me my family my friend and it just felt 
kind of just right. Everything just felt right in my head suddenly. So I made the plan and um, it was all, yeah, it was just concrete in my head. And um, the next morning, it was it was a Monday morning, 14th of January, 2008. I did the usual, it was a usual hospital morning, uh, you know, medication and breakfast and psychiatrist comes around and I was like, yeah, I'm fine. You know, usual, just telling them what they want to hear. Um, and then I, I ran away from the hospital. Um, I said I needed a cigarette from, from the nurse and the nurse let me out and I ran away as, as soon as I got out of the hospital and then I went to the bridge um, and then I went on to the edge of the bridge um, and I mean my memory is quite hazy of I don't know how much time I was on the edge before this stranger came along my head was um, I was, well, I was terrified but I was also kind of um, terrified but not excited but kind of just ready and sort of geared up and um, sort of trying to find the right moment and then this stranger was there beside me to the right of me and talking to me and I was just frustrated that he was there he was, he was engaging with me I didn't want to engage with anyone um, but there was something about him that was uh, it, it, it made me engage with him he was so sort of grounded and, and calm and just really very open it was different basically you know I've been in hospital for a month and in the hospital you didn't have sort of proper conversations with people because everyone was behind their clipboards you know the nurses and, and the doctors and everyone just spoke from their clipboards and it was all very clinical and I don't know. This was different because it, it was like a normal human sort of interaction. And I think the fact he was a young guy, just like me, and and eventually I did begin to engage with him. It was just, yeah, there was something about the way that he was. He was just, I, I could, I felt I could open up to him, and I felt I could tell him things. And he just, he didn't judge. He had no, he, he had no sort of response. He didn't, you know, when I was in hospital, and I would try and be honest and say you know I feel suicidal they would react straight away and they'd say right well you know we're going to give you this medication or we, right, we need to phone the psychiatrist and he's going to come down and we need to do you know what I mean like whereas this guy was just like okay you know that's, that's fine yeah I felt a, a very sort of quick connection to him that was that was different to, to anything I'd had before and do you know I think it was his what really got me was his sort of his, his positivity, his positivity and his kind of like, it's all right, mate, you know, you're going to be all right. Like, you, this is just temporary. You're going to get through this. It just his, yeah, his, his positive way with me, which, again, I hadn't experienced in the hospital because in the hospital there was this sense of, um, well, we don't know what's going to happen to you and we don't know if you're going to get better and this lack of sort of hope, to be honest. Whereas he had this... Um, had this this hope, this positivity, uh, yeah, that made that made a big difference. And and finally, he started to you know say to me, right, well, let's let's look at maybe going for a coffee, and you know, let's go somewhere. What it was freezing, it was a freezing cold day, and I was only wearing a t-shirt. And uh, you know, he talked about going for a coffee, and um, and I finally agreed because I I just I felt I had found someone that I could talk to and trust and. Not, not. He was non-judgmental, and he was just. 
Ah, yeah, I had this this connection, and I wanted to go with him and, and see what what would happen. I thought he could help me. I thought there was a another way, you know. So he he did. He helped me off the edge of the bridge, and <laughs> it all went a bit wrong after he helped me off the edge, and I was on the pavement. The police had been waiting for me, I think, further down, and they drew up in their car and they jumped out, and I panicked when they jumped out because. I thought, you know, I'm in trouble now, and uh, I'm back to square one, and I tried to get back over the edge of the bridge, and he, this stranger grabbed me and stopped me, and the police then took over, and they handcuffed me, and they took me away, and and, and then me and the stranger, we were split up, and he, you know, I was taken one way to be sectioned, and he was, take, he was you know, he went back to work to, to sort of carry on his day, and so that was our kind of separation, that was our moment together, and... Um, yeah, and then for me it, it was it was difficult being sectioned and, and um, I think after I was sectioned and, and I was taken back to the hospital that I ran away from, I felt different. There was, I, I mean, I felt incredibly guilty for, for what I'd done and then I felt ashamed. I felt embarrassed, I felt cowardly, but I, I had a bit of a sense of, you know, oh, maybe I can get through this. Because that stranger was, was, you know, so positive and so invested in me. Um, so I did, I felt a bit different. And I, I managed to finally get out of the hospital and sort of begin my sort of recovery. How did you get yourself out from that place to the point where you were able to reintegrate into society what did you do to manage your condition sort of you, you know what, what what treatments methodologies did did you utilize to, to, to really help you out of that situation well i think firstly um i um i took a while it took a while for sure my early 20s the the next few years after the incident on the bridge and being sectioned the next few years were were very strange. I just I was kind of in limbo. I didn't I didn't address it. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to take my medication. I didn't want therapy. I just I was just I was in denial. I was in denial. I didn't want to acknowledge it. But then it was in my mid twenties when I finally I just I'd had enough of, of hiding it of of you know kind of um, just not dealing with it. And in my mid twenties I finally I finally started to to talk about it. And um, when I was in hospital the the first time. Um, Someone, a nurse, pulled me aside and she said, "You know, you, you you don't engage with anything. You're not talking." I said, "I know." And she said, "Well, you know, have you ever thought of trying mindfulness?" And I was like, "Never heard of it." And mm. she said, um, "She recommended me this this audio book called uh, Mindfulness for Beginners by John Kabat-Zinn." Mm-hmm. Um, and I got it, and it lay on my shelf for years because I just was like, "I'm not, you know, I'm not going to engage with that. It's not going to work." But then in my mid twenties, when I, you know, as I said, I'd had enough, and I, I just. I needed I needed to try something else. Um, so I, I, I listened to this this audio CD, uh, Mindfulness for Beginners, and that was a revelation. It was such a revelation for me. And and trying my first meditation, it was a uh, just a short ten minute meditation, and I did it. And you know, afterwards, I remember I I went to the sink just to wash my hands, just, you know, mm. and I I was washing my hands and. I was completely present, you know, I was, I was there, you know, I was listening to the water, um, you know, running and going down the plug hole and I turned the tap off and I was listening to the birds outside and 
it was just it was such a revelation because I'd never had that peace of mind before my mind was always so busy and cluttered and and you know so much going on and finally I I had some peace of mind and you know once you taste it you 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 want more and you mm. know, you, you never want to go back um things changed you know I I I, I was uh, trying mindfulness I finally engaged in therapy I mean yeah over the years I've had I had relapses you know I I usually stress related actually um I just I I I I can't cope and I become psychotic um, um, and I'll have to maybe go back into hospital for a period but the last time I became psychotic about uh, just over a year ago um, it was it was stress related I, I, I was not dealing with or coping with the, the the work you know I was not I wasn't taking any breaks I was really uh, becoming stressed by the workload and the content of the work um, I was drinking too much, I wasn't sleeping, and sleep is a massive, massive thing for everyone. But for me, insomnia usually causes me to go into psychosis. Um, my psychiatrist now is, is totally different. She, she's, she's so positive. She, you know, I came into hospital and she was like, it's fine, you know, you're going to get through this. We've, we've done this before. And that makes such a big difference. And the people, my family, my friends, my network now, they're positive. They're like, you know, you'll, you'll get through this, you'll get better. Um, and my attitude is so different, you know, I'm like, I've done it before, I'll do it again, and, and you know, it's all learning, and it's, I think the attitude, that's so important, your, your, your relationship to your, or the relationship to my mental health is, is, is very different now, and I know I've got tools, I've got, like, like meditation, I've got tools where, you know, I can, I can, you know, I can ground myself again, and I can reconnect to myself, and it takes a bit of help and, and, and support, but I, I can get there, and I think that's, that's such a big difference now uh, there's many things that you said there that I think are worth picking up on the power of belief is, is so important because if you believe you can get better you can and again there's so much data out there to support this people have got three months left to live if you tell mm. them the majority of them will expire within that three month mm. period people that aren't many of them will live many years beyond that and this this is a concern that, that, that the moment you make someone believe there's no hope there's no hope so it's when you get to that stage where you believe I can get better, your mind will influence the very functioning of your body to start driving you in that direction. There is something I want to pick up on though um, that, that you mentioned, and you, you, you talked about when you're at university and you discovered alcohol and how mm. that started to kind of have an effect on your on, on your state. Yeah. Um, it's just something that I have I, I have been looking at uh, quite closely over the, the, the last few years. There was a study that was commissioned by the government in 2010 under a, a gentleman called Professor David Nutt, mm. um, who looked at all the different drugs that are commonly used, both mm. recreational, illicit drugs, and otherwise, uh, to look at which were what were highest on what he would describe as the harm score. So, you know, in terms of harm to self and harm yeah. to others, for, for every thousand people that use this particular drug. And, you know, it had all of the illicit drugs, cocaine, heroin, etc. Uh, heroin actually was the second most harmful. Mm. The most harmful drug in use uh, in modern society, or in Britain, according to this study, is alcohol. Mm. Uh, in terms of harm to self yeah. and harm to others. And this is, uh, this is something I find fascinating, because obviously we're getting to a point where mental health issues are higher than they've ever been before. And, you know, alcohol is a significant contributing factor to this. I myself kind of struggle with this journey to the point where mm. 
I pretty much don't drink anymore because I realize now I've got made a strong connection between my mental emotional state and whether or not I've consumed alcohol. Um, yeah. So I just want to ask you about this, yeah. not, not in any way judging or anything no, like that, no, just, no, to, yeah. just, just to get your thoughts yeah. and perspective on this. Because you, you, you mentioned just in your story yeah. here, of your recent episode where you found yourself drinking too much. You mentioned that when you were talking about when you were in Manchester. I'd just be really interested to, to, to get your take on the correlation on the relationship between alcohol consumption and our mental and emotional state. Yeah, it scares me a little bit. It scares me. Um, you know, when I was at university, when I was, you know, in my early 20s, I didn't think much about it because it was just a dumb thing. You know, it's university, it's fresh as we, you just consume as much as you can. You don't, obviously, you, you get your hangovers, but everyone talks about the physical mm. side of it. Oh, the hangovers, the headaches, and people still do, actually. You know, I've just, I haven't thought about this before, but, you know, thinking of my friends and, um, you know, they consume alcohol and you know everyone the next day is like, oh my head my I feel sick um but no one talks about the emotional side of it actually yeah um for me for me i, I just I, i'm not that sort of person that can just have one drink i don't just do the one you know I, 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 once i start i'm like right let's and it the thing with me as well is um um when i'm around people i want them to consume because I just want everyone because I, I, my, in, my inhibitions go, my inhibitions, my insecurities. You like, want everyone to have a good time. I want everyone to have a good time, and I want their inhibitions and insecurities to go as well, and I want us to all be um, happy and you know life's hard. Um, so, and then also you know there's times when I've drunk alone, and that really, that's a really sort of horrible mm. sort of, and yeah, I mean. I'm alright at the moment, but there are times in my life when, when the stress comes on where I'm like, you know, I was in a meeting once and it was going really badly and the first thought I had was alcohol, I need, I need alcohol. As soon as I get out of here, I, I'm, I'm going to absolutely get obliterated and that, you know, we were talking before about, you know, the thought of suicide and that relief. Mm. For me, sometimes it's like, I'm just going to get obliterated and that, there's a sort of sense of relief, a sense of, whew, like... Yeah, there's a there's a um, there's a way I can escape this, and but that's that's the before. It's the after effects of the alcohol that that Absolutely. cause. Um, you know, for me, it's uh, it's not just the. I mean, the physical. Yeah, I get horrible like physical hangovers, but it's the emotional, emotional hangover. hangovers, and that the, can be really really scary. Like mm. a, you know, those hangovers can send me into a really dark place for a few days. Mm. Uh, it's interesting because listening to you talk, it's. There are so many similarities between us because I can't just go out and have a pint or two. People's like, oh, just be sensible, mm. you know, just have a few social ones. Once I start, mm. with anything I do in life, again, it's one of the things that goes along with having OCD is when you start, yeah. you can't stop. Even no. if you know you're doing something damaging, and in some ways it's served me well where, you know, I've gone on to climb mountains and do an Ironman triathlon and have really big successes in, in uh, my professional career. Mm. But it also led to some damaging things like, you know, maybe ending up staying in a relationship way longer than mm-hmm. I should have or, you know, continuing doing things that were damaging me mentally, physically, emotionally because mm-hmm. I can't stop. No, And no. It, it's the same. It's like, you know, like two or three drinks in and it's going to go off. And yeah. it's going to go on until yeah. four o'clock in the morning yeah. until like I keel over or everybody else passes out. And that's kind of scary because... Um, Again, I know that I have that about my personality, yeah. which is where I kind of had to get to the stage. And it took a while to get there where it's just, if I'm an all or nothing person and there's something that's damaging, it's probably better off to stick with nothing rather than, 
you know, going the, the, the place that's going to do me damage. I think as well, yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, it's the, um, what, what scares me is kind of the, the impulsivity that alcohol for me can bring. So mm-hmm. it's great when, when, <laughs> when everything's sort of going well, like I'm drinking and, you know, I'm with friends and it's all going well, it's, it's great. It's great. We have a great time. But when something goes wrong, so maybe there's an argument or maybe, you know, just something's going wrong in general in, in my life. And there's a point when alcohol becomes so destructive and, and you know, I've been led to suicidal ideation because of alcohol on, on, on bad nights or I've been able to you know when I remember there was a period at university when I was self-harming and the alcohol just it, it made the self-harm worse because I was like um, I was able to you know sort of go a bit further with the self-harm because the alcohol was, was there was present in me and that yeah that's uh, yeah I find it I find it a bit scary Mm. Bit, bit worrying, bit concerning for for me. So I just really kind of want to get a sense of: Do you feel when there's a slide happening, when your 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 mental emotional health is starting to decline? And if so, what would you do in terms of coping techniques to prevent further decline? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Now I, I I I can detect when when that decline is is happening. And before I wouldn't. Well, before I'd react to it with things like drinking more because. Mm. Um, I, 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 I couldn't express it I couldn't talk about it so I used to find other ways to, to deal with it like like alcohol or self-harm but now um, you know when I, when I feel it happening you know maybe uh, not sleeping properly maybe my thoughts are becoming more paranoid or, or, or more anxious more distressing um, I see a therapist every week so I'll, I'll talk to my therapist about it I'll, I'll try and talk to people around me about it if I can um, I'll put more in place I'll you know because I live in, in, in London and I need to get out of London sometimes mm. and go into nature so I'll make a point of you know right this weekend I'm, I'm getting out of London and I'm going off into nature I'm, I'm sitting down I'm doing some writing so I'll, I'll put things in place when you know I know that's happening um, and I, I think it's just try and be honest to try and be honest with, with myself and with others and um, yeah, I'm trying to get better at it, you know, trying to trying to get better at that honesty. But I, I I find it hard though because now, sort of, I'm like this this sort of mental health campaigner, and you know, often people will I'll do, I'll do a talk and people will see me as kind of like, um, well, you're 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 you know you're 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 fine now, or or you know things are kind of rosy for you now or all the media even when I've done stuff with the media it's like well you had that you know the stranger on the bridge and and you had that and now now things are good for you yeah and I'm like well I still have to manage my, my mental health and you know it's not it's not plain sailing people want to hear that that kind like of Disney happy ending yeah they do they do they really do that's um, not how the world is it's not it's not and actually to be honest I always find it's funny because yeah when I talk to young people going to schools they're more realistic actually often about you know what, what it's like and how you manage it and you know they're the ones that are it's, it's when I go in to talk to adults sometimes they're the ones that are, are, are more kind of like um, almost yeah removed from it scared kind of fearful of, 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 of really going too deep or um, wanting to know that it just all gets better just everything's mm. going to be fine sometimes yeah the adults are, it's funny the adults are uh, mm. just less kind of open to it than, than, than young people, which is interesting, I find. And, and that, again, is, is something that is concerning, primarily because, 
you know, mental health is, is, is one of the most serious issues we face as a society. One in three of us, you know, suffering from mental mm. health, mental ill health. Um, as we mentioned, you know, people taking their own life is is the number one reason for early death in men under the age of forty five. This is this is a serious thing. Most of us don't want to go there, or just don't know how to recognise it early enough. No. So, what signs should we look for in ourselves or in our loved ones to to, to ensure that we can pick this up early enough? Well, I think you know, outwardly changes in behaviour. So you know, maybe sleeping more, sleeping less. Uh, eating more, eating less, you know what I mean? Changes in, in, in behavior or mood or how engaged people are um, or how engaged you are with people. How, how You know, I know myself, if I start saying no to people, you know, oh, come out tonight and I'm like, no, no, I can't. And, and the next night it's like, no, no, I can't. I know myself, like, right, well, why am I not wanting to engage with people? You know, I know that mm. there's something going on I really need to kind of, kind of look deeper into. Uh, or, or my friends, you know, I know that if they're saying, you know, oh, I'm not coming out, I'm not coming out today, I'm not coming out tomorrow, I'm not coming out the next day, I know that, you know, maybe I need to check in and, and really kind of try and see what's going on. Um, but I think just generally, just, just you know, not, not every day checking in, but, you know, regularly, regularly checking in, particularly if something has happened, like there's been an event, like, um, like for example, you know, one of my best friends lost his mum, and his dad actually, his dad, um, recently and then his mum even more recently and you know we have this thing in the Jewish community you know you have the, your, your burial and you have this period of mourning and then it's like right the morning's done you've done it for a few days morning's done right back to work back to normality and that's not the way it works and you know he says to me you know people were great in the beginning but then you know what about the the the, the first kind of Christmas or Hanukkah you know or, or you know my birthday you know the, what was that and, and people so I'm always trying to sort of check in with him and because I know obviously his mental health has been affected by what what's happened and so I think particularly if there's been an event you know checking in with people and just you know just just checking in it, it can make a big difference you know and it just goes back to that point we were talking about recovery is not linear um, no and it's, it's, it's the same in the Indian community. It's like, you know, you've got your 10 days of mourning and then you just go back to normal. And actually it was the 10 days of mourning, I was fine, I was holding it together and you've got stuff to do. Cause, uh, exactly. My father died recently. And and then it was when that finished and I came back to yeah. work, it's like, and I was expected to be okay and everyone's like, oh, yeah, you know, just carrying off with normal. And that's when it hit me that actually I'm not okay. No. And I fell to pieces. I sure. like, properly broke down and sure. was dysfunctional for several weeks. And sure. I was literally spent much of it lying on my kitchen floor. Yeah. And then, then you feel better and you come back to work and then Christmas comes and then again, you, you feel that you're better and then you drop back down. Sure, of course. Dad's of course. not here. And then, um, you know, his birthday and then again it yeah. brings it all back and then it's father's day and it brings it all back and then it was the world cup and i always watched football with my dad and the last thing i did with my dad was watch yeah. a, 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 you know an england game and it's like sure. it all comes back and it, even now even talking about it it brings it back up and it's just it and that's the thing it's like with any kind of mental emotional trauma it doesn't just go away no. because you've taken your pills no. or you've done your meditation no. it's there and it can come up at any time and i think that's the key thing is like we all want the happy ending where it's fixed, it's over. You know, you've got the all clear. Yeah, like absolutely, absolutely. And again, I think way. people are afraid to go there. You know, like you, all the things you were just saying. People are afraid to ask the question. Um, I don't. It's not. I don't think it's because people don't care. People do care, but mm. I think it's just. I agree. Yeah. It's just people don't know what to say. They don't know what to say. That they don't know. How, particularly in this kind of yeah, this British 
society, particularly if you know you come from a religious background. Often, you know, mm. just um, you know, I know from my from the Jewish community, you know, we're so good at talking about physical ailments in the Jewish. Like I know from my family. You know all the all the get-togethers. It's like, oh, you know, my leg. It's been playing up. Or my <laughs> happily talk about their physical ailments. You know, they'll they'll talk about it. Some of my family, Jewish family, talk about it non-stop. You know, mm. their physical ailments. But when it comes to mental health, it's like, like I know with me, like it was like my parents. You know, even my parents, bless them, they they didn't explain what was. They were just like, oh, he's very exhausted. He's very tired. He's in hospital. Mm. End of. Do you know what I mean? They, they, they couldn't go into detail with, with, with family, with their friends for, for quite a few years because of that stigma and because of that sort of shame, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. Is that hearing that, like, there are a lot of parallels between, say, for example, the Indian community and the Jewish community. So, yeah. that, you know, they're kind of quite closed and there's things that they're comfortable talking about and there's some things that just don't exist. No, exactly. And mental health is absolutely one of them. Yeah. It's just something that people just don't talk about. No, no it happens to other people. Mm. It happens to other people. It doesn't mm. happen to people in our sort of community or mm. if it does happen, it's like, well, we don't talk about that or we talk about it in very hushed tones or... Um, mm. Particularly, you know, again, the older generation, the older generation, because they're not used to talking about it, you know, it's very different. Um, and I think, again, it's going to take a while for that to kind of filter through. I want to bring it back to Neil and the Finding Mike campaign. Tell me how you felt about the, the, this beyond the documentary. Obviously, you're, you're passionate about lifting the stigma of mental illness. But I guess you had to get really vulnerable to, to kind of go there and also to manage your own health. There must have been a great deal of anxiety around the campaign and the documentary. Yeah, there was. There was. There really was. Yeah, I, I, I was really apprehensive to be honest about about doing the the whole campaign to find the guy because, you know, firstly I just I didn't believe we'd find him because, you know, think of the millions and millions of people in London and, you know, what if he doesn't see it? What if he doesn't want to come forward? You know, that was a possibility. And and so just just remind me. So why was it called Finding Mike? Because uh, obviously his name is Neil. I know. So I I. My memory of that day was, was hazy, I couldn't remember his name. I called him Mike. Um, and so the campaign became Find Mike. Um, and that's the thing, I, I, I was really apprehensive because I didn't have all the details. I was worried we wouldn't find him. I was worried people's react, like it's a difficult subject mm. to, to go on TV and... Um, but it, the, the response was, was really quite incredible. Um, and you had quite a few fake mics, didn't you? Mm, How did, did that make you feel, like someone popping forward saying, no, it was me? I just thought that was very strange and sad, actually, in a way. Well, do you imagine the reason is for that? What, in their five minutes of fun? Yeah, but, but, yeah, but I think, you know, there were a number of sort of genuine, maybe not the person I was looking for, but there were genuine people that came forward that had stopped someone else okay. from jumping yeah, off. Fair enough. Um, and those stories were amazing. Mm. You know, to read those stories, it was incredible. And then obviously we, we did, we found Neil, not Mike, and that was a really special, so special. You so know, how did he get in touch? So, so the campaign launched and it went all over the internet and, and his wife Sarah found it on Facebook, found the campaign, a friend of hers had shared it and she saw the, the, the campaign and she was like, oh my God, this is, this is Neil, this is my husband. And, and Neil obviously saw it and my face was on the, on the campaign and um, when Neil saw my face, you know, he, he knew, he knew, obviously he knew straight away and he got in touch with, with us because I was working with a charity and to do the campaign and he got in touch and we, we met and... And how was that? That must have been a very powerful moment. The person that literally saved your life. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was so powerful and, 
yeah, very special. But the most, <laughs> the thing that got me was he was just so humble. I mean, he was really humble. He was just like, well, you know, all I did was have a conversation and he couldn't accept that I was, uh, you know, saying to him, well, you, you say in my life, you, you made this massive difference. He couldn't, mm. which was incredibly humble. And it, it was just, it was just incredibly special, to, not just for me, but for him as well. He, he talks about it, he says, you know, is just because, you know, he'd see me in that place, you know, where I was, in such despair and now he was seeing me in, in, in this place of kind of um, peace and, 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 and kind of uh, a very a very different, so for him it was, it was really special as well, for me obviously it was just to be able to thank him and say you know you made this massive difference and to, to explain you know what happened after and it was closure for him but also yeah closure for me as well I think mm. um, and then obviously he then said you know what can we do together, how can we work together and that was just yeah really really amazing you know I didn't expect him to kind of I thought that was it you know we'd, we'd met we'd you know hopefully gonna stay in touch and be friends but not for him to then come on board and work with me which he's now done uh, and what do you guys do so t- tell me about what Neil and Johnny are up to so for about a year and a half now we've been giving talks together because um, people want to hear they want to hear our story and, and kind of it's not just about my story it's about his story as well you know he calls himself an ally someone that is there for for someone with a mental health issue and what that's like so now we go and we give talks at you know schools universities companies prisons nhs but then we're also we're setting up a new charity which is um focused on on getting people help and support because there's not enough help and support out there for people so we're, we're setting up this charity and then also We've kind of, we're trying to divide and conquer, so Neil's really focusing on the workplace, workplace mental health, he's doing a mental health conference. Um, I'm focusing on young people and education and trying to get mental health education into schools, universities, so there's a lot that we we are doing, we want to achieve, Um, you know, I'm particularly passionate about prisons, the justice system is is just so wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So, and, and not just in the UK, but working worldwide, because, you know, I traveled to India, couple of years ago to do some work there and and we've got work to do here but the work we need to do in countries like India to kind of destigmatize mental health and change the treatment you know I saw people locked up in cages and Mm. it's just there's just so much work to do it's it it, it can feel overwhelming but you know making progress and you know it's it's also about the people around you the people that you know because there are so many people in this space now which is amazing you know people mm-hmm. we need to do it together we have to do it together absolutely and i i i'm very much with you there that there's a lot of conflicting information and, and agendas which means that, that the people are overwhelmed they don't know which direction to go and i think you know as this industry matures I'm hoping we get to a point where we can collaborate for mm. mutual benefit that mm. we can work together absolutely. for the, the same outcome we have to you know, we stand to, to for, as an organisation, our organisation stands to create a happier, healthier, more mm. resilient world, however possible, mm. and what, with whatever mm. means necessary. Um, and yeah, I think that's really important. So, yeah. you know, massive credit to you guys for what you're doing. And um, it's great when you're able to turn your own personal experience into something we can use for wider good, mm. to be able to contribute to creating a better world. Um, and that's, that's something that's really important to me. And I just really want to get your thoughts and perspective about the current treatments and interventions that are available, what needs to change? What needs to improve? Is sectioning the right course of action? Are the wards and staffing in, in, in kind of the, uh, the, the medical establishment working in the, 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 the individual's best interest? 
I think there's a long way to go. A long way to go. I think, um, you know, I've been into hospital a few times myself. I've, I've been into different hospitals to, to, to visit other people or to, you know, as part of my work. And oh, there's, there's such a long way to go. Um, you know, I, I try and I, I do talks in the NHS. I, I talk to psychiatrists. It's just too often that the, the individual is, is lost. They're, they're lost in the system. They're put into this box. It's like, well, you've got this condition. You need to take this medication or, you know, it's, it's so limited what's out there. You know, often um, someone will go to their GP and they're right, put on antidepressants and they're given six weeks of, of, of CBT therapy. And, you know, for some people that, that's fine, it might work. But for the majority, you know, it's it's, it's, it's not enough and, and the individual is, is, is lost. I mean, um, again, it's so different when, you know, my dad was diagnosed with prostate cancer uh, a couple of years ago. And, you know, when he was diagnosed and, and went for treatment, it was so different. They, they gave him a choice. It was like, well, you could have this, this kind of, um, this radiotherapy or, or this laser treatment and you can have it here and let's talk about your recovery. Whereas too often when someone is diagnosed with, with a mental health issue, whatever you want to call it, it's just like, right, you've got this, this is all we can do for you. And, and it, it, it's so frustrating because as you know, there's so much out there that is unexplored and there's so much out there that people are afraid to kind of try or... And I, I think this is interesting because you say it's unexplored. There are things out there that have actually been explored yeah. very extensively since yeah. the 1950s. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you talked about with, with cancer, you know, you know, using things like CBD oil, uh, mm. which is obviously based for uh, derived from cannabis as treatments for people that have serious things like fibromyalgia, cancer, yeah. and various other things. And it's been proven to be unequivocally effective. The World Health Organization report that was published in April said it, this is probably the yeah. safest way to treat some of these illnesses. Uh, psilocybin mushrooms yeah. in use with mental health conditions you know the plant medicines are not a new thing they've been around no. for thousands of years I th- yeah I think when I say when I mean when I say unexplored I mean by the professionals because they're afraid to, uh, it, exactly. there's, there's, there's lots out there but it's the professionals that have unexplored that they're, they're, they're not willing to explore it because um, and again I think we need to go back into the education system and the way that we're training people and the way that we're talking to people um, because yeah, you know, if, if someone, like, GPs are given, you know, GP, again, this is a bugbear of mine, you know, only 50, 50% of GPs get any sort of mental health training, which seems ridiculous when so many appointments now are to do with mental health. And and they're just given, you know, well, this is all you can do for people with mental health issues, just this, just that. So they don't know, if they knew, if their minds were opened up to what was out there, you know, it could make such a big difference. So totally. I think we need to look at the way that we're we're. we're training those professionals because so we had um, a big difference. Dr. Rongan Chatterjee um, mm. that does the BBC show Doctor on the House, he was yeah. in our, our first series mm. of Life Changing Conversations and he talks about the fact that most doctors get somewhere between 10 and 15 hours worth of nutritional training whereas if you're looking at someone's health holistically what you eat, you know, exercise, yeah. meditation, like what is now described as functional health is mm. probably as important than anything else to kind of improve your overall well-being but there are very few doctors that will give you a prescription to go meditate twice a day or walk or change no, your diet. No. Whereas even though that's probably going to be way more effective at putting your body back into yeah. balance, the medication which actually puts you out of balance, then you need yeah. more medication to rebalance what's been unbalanced. And you get stuck in this kind of cycle of consuming things mm-hmm. to try and get yourself right. And none of it works. Mm. Big changes need to happen. 
Because the work that I do, you know, it can be very... Um, I get, you know, I meet people, I get messages from people that have lost loved ones to suicide or, or I hear such tragic stories, people that are really unwell, people that can't get help, people that are really struggling. And I think for me, I, I, and I take everything on, I really sort of, you know, I carry things. Uh, if I hear something, I'll, I carry it. And so much injustice, so much injustice, and I, and I, I carry that. And so sometimes... Um, I feel very overwhelmed and... Um, that must be exhausting. It is, it is, it is, it is, for sure. Because, like, you, you want to help everyone. You want to help everyone. Um, yeah, and, I, yeah, it, it is exhausting. So I, I, I do, I, I do feel like this is my, this is my life's work. And, yeah, no, it is. A, it's your purpose for existence. It's, yeah, my purpose, but I need to find a way to, um, yeah, balance, balance it. Because... Um, you know, when I get an email at three in the morning saying, you know, um, I've, I've tried to kill myself recently, I don't know what to do, or I'm, I'm about to kill myself and I don't know where to go. It, it, it weighs on me so much. Um, you know, I try and respond in the best way I can, but um, that always, you know, yeah, it weighs on me. It weighs on me and, uh, yeah, I need to kind of... I'm going to give you a thought to consider. You get on a plane and the plane hasn't taken off. They're going through the safety instructions and just... Letting you know what you should do in case there's an emergency. Let's say there's a drop in cabin pressure and the oxygen mask comes yeah. down. Before you attempt to put a mask on someone else, yeah. what do you do? Yeah, I know you put your mask on yourself for sure. But surely that's yeah. really selfish. Like that's that's a really self-centered thing to do. Why why would you not try and help the the, the children or the old person or the injured person first? No, because you've got to help yourself first. Because you can't, you can't do anything help anyone to else unless yeah, you help yourself. Yeah. So no, and I, sure. and I think. The reality is that, you know, for us on this path, for us to really be mm. able to affect true change, that journey starts with yourself. Yeah. And it's really hard because I'm exactly the same. And the question I've had to ask myself is you get that email at three o'clock in the morning and it's just like you feel compelled to do something. Number one, you chose to check that email at three o'clock uh. in the morning. It's like, it's like, am I showing up in a way that I'm going to be able to affect the things I care about as as powerfully as possible mm. if I'm not in a good place. Mm. And I think that's where we do live in a society where we are trained that it's better to give than to receive. Mm. It's, it's fascinating. When I explored the true origins of that phrase, the actual true origins is a Greek proverb, which is it's better to be in a position to give mm. than to need to receive. It it's was adapted in the fourth century yeah, by yeah. an organization. I'll let people figure out which organization. <laughs> it's just kind of suited their agenda of handing out yeah. a basket on the Sunday afternoon to change that phrase in a way that people feel it's better to be giving. Yeah. But the, 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 the side effect, the consequence of making that change is we've now got to a point in culture we feel it's selfish to look after no, ourselves. I know, I know, yeah, I know. And I feel bad sometimes when I talk about that. Oh, I'm going off to, um, you know, I'm leaving London for the day. I need to get out to the country. And everyone's, everyone's like, well, like why? Or like, mm. you know, like, um, well, you, shouldn't you be doing this? Or, um, mm. you know, what about doing that? And yeah, putting myself first. Um, yeah, I feel guilty. Yeah, I do feel guilty. I feel guilty sometimes or not just not just from other people, but from myself. You know, totally. like, oh, I could be doing this. You know, when I'm meditating sometimes, <laughs> You know, my mind, just monkey mind is like, you know, well, oh, I need to do this, I've got to send that email, I've got to see this person, mm. I've got, and, and then well, how am I going to fit that in? And, you know, the time that I should be um, really, you know, focusing in on myself and giving myself time and space and healing and I'm actually, you know, off on, 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 on focusing on other people and 
and it's not a bad thing, is it? It's, it's the way that it is. What it is. It's, it's what it is. Um, I'm actually having at the moment. I'm having something called CFT, which is compassion focused therapy, which is okay, all about. Yeah, it's all about developing self compassion, and that is so. I mean, my therapist is is phenomenal. His name is Charlie, and he talks. He, he makes videos about uh, CFT, compassion focused therapy. He does lots of conferences, and he's. Um, mm-hmm very special person and um, yeah I mean developing self-compassion and not being so judgmental and you know when you're doing that kind of putting other people first you know not being yourself up or when you're doing for yourself not being yourself up about about that um, it's and just the reality uh, of the moment exactly and that will change and exactly that moment will end. and I, yeah I remember my first Vipassana it's, it's 10 days of deep introspection I expected to be sitting there like Buddha under a tree reaching enlightenment Spent the first six days uh, thinking about food and sex. Like the two <laughs> biggest ego drives. It's like I thought about everyone I'd ever had sex with, everyone yeah. that I would ever thought about having sex with, everything I wanted to eat in you know in every minute for the first month after I left. And it's like this is not an enlightened experience yeah. I'm having here. But the reality is that's that the reality. Yeah. that's that's what's going on, yeah. and it's only when you get beyond that yeah. and you're able to process that and uh, release that can you get to what's underneath yeah. that. It's like layers of an onion. Oh, it is. It really is. It really is. And we all we all have it. We all have it. Mm. Um, and again, I feel grateful that I'm able to go a bit further. There's still more layers. <laughs> uh, there, there always is, and I think that's a lifetime's or many lifetimes journey, depending on what you mm, believe in. Absolutely. I think you know that's very true with our conversation today. This is a this is a conversation that we can continue for many absolutely, hours, I'm sure. Absolutely, it's been such a joy and pleasure having you with us today. I thank you so much for your your thank time you. today. You've given up your morning to be with us. No, thank you. Your life changing conversation inevitably will give hope to others as well. And I'm inspired by your story. Um, where can people find out more? Uh, website? Yeah, website. Just it's just my name, Johnny, JohnnyBenjamin.co.uk, mm-hmm. um, and there's lots of information on there. We'll make sure we put links Thank to uh, both the book and your website in yeah. in the notes. Um, yeah, once again, it's been a, a real pleasure Thank having you. you here. Please like, comment, share, give us your feedback. If you've got any questions for Johnny, post them underneath. We'll make sure we uh, pass mm-hmm. them on. And if there are other people you feel need to hear this story, please do share this message. The more people that can feel that there is hope, um, the more we can start reducing those awful statistics that that are often banded around. Um, We'll be back soon with our next episode. Peace out. You've been listening to the Life Changing Conversations podcast with Neil Shah. This podcast was produced by Change Your World Events in collaboration with the Stress Management Society. Like, comment and share and keep the conversation going. Hashtag LCC podcast.